This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Coming up... King Charles is a man with a battle on his hands. ...on the whole story. The king is acutely aware that they're only there for as long as the public wants them to be there. The institution is so unique. Do you ever imagine that the monarchy would go away? Good evening, welcome to The Whole Story. I'm Anderson Cooper. Final preparations are underway in the United Kingdom right now for the coronation of King Charles III and his wife Camilla, the Queen Consort. It's a ceremony steeped in tradition, with some of the rituals dating back nearly a thousand years. It's only been televised once, however, when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned nearly 70 years ago. She was one of the longest serving and most celebrated monarchs in British history, but her son faces a different type of reign. The royal family is splintered, and with a new and less popular monarch on the throne, many are questioning the role of this royal institution. CNN's Erica Hill traveled to London to meet with leading British scholars, journalists, and those close to the royal family to better understand what this moment and this man mean in a modern world. The reign begins. Charles and Camilla. The Queen has died, very sadly. For 70 years, this country has only known a queen. King Charles III is taking over. Long live the king. For centuries, London reigned as a global centre. For finance, for theatre, for thought. Today, there is an undeniable energy from South London's vibrant Brixton neighborhood to the streets and shops of trendy Soho. Its palaces and history still a major draw, no matter the weather. Everything begins and ends here at Buckingham Palace. Oh, it's the changing of the guard. Much like the changing of the guard, the British monarchy has been steadfast loyal to its role on this island and beyond. In the past, it represented power. Nowadays, it's supposed to represent shared values. The idea that it brings us all together in shared values is frankly not true. I mean, like, it, it's my, supposed to. I'm it's not supposed saying to, it I, doesn't. It has we never, are here debating whether that's true or not. But it's never been true. Most people in Britain and the empire probably don't have that relationship and don't think it's shared values. British scholars Kayende Andrews, Kate Williams, Helen Carr, and Robert Lacey came ready for that debate and more. The Queen's monarchy was the high watermark of monarchy. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived. We'll never have monarchy, I would say again, in terms of such impact and such world influence and, and talked about so much. I think things are definitely changing. Over the last century, with the advent of the internet, social media, everything has become so much more global. And I think young people who are growing up in that world, that very connected world, are starting to ask bigger questions. I don't really get it, and I don't really see the point anymore. I don't wish them any harm. They're, they're fine. Just, I don't want to be part of it. How do you feel about the monarchy? I think of the history because I'm from Ghana, so I kind of think of the, the colonization and things like that. At its height a century ago, 
the British Empire was the largest and most powerful the world had ever seen. King George V ruled over 74 countries and territories, counting 458 million people as his subjects. We are in flux in this country between do we acknowledge slavery? Do we acknowledge empire? Do we acknowledge how much it has made this country, you know, this tiny, tiny country, one of the richest and most powerful countries yes, in the world? Tiny... Or, do, or, do we, or do we carry on with the idea of fair play and railways and that, you know, British influence is always benevolent? Whatever the sins of Britain in the past, King Charles is, is quite aware of those. He has inherited an institution with many imperfections. In 2023, just how much can King Charles put right? How much of these imperfections does he need to address to keep this royal institution alive? I want to acknowledge that the roots of our contemporary association run deep into the most painful period of our history. I cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as I continue to deepen my own understanding of slavery's enduring impact. He's gone some way already, but he's acknowledged the hurt that people feel, but the key sticking point is what's, what's wanted is an apology. In early April, the king agreed to open the royal archives to researchers looking into the monarchy's ties to slavery. What people are asking of the royal family now is simply, what do you stand for? What are you going to do with all your money and privilege and visibility? His former communications secretary, Christina Kiriakou, says the king has been preparing for those questions for decades. He sees himself as in a position where he can be the great convener, the great mediator, the interjectory, the person who brings something to the fore. The Commonwealth has been a constant in my own life. Its sheer scale challenges us to unite and be bold. While many are hopeful King Charles can achieve those goals. I think uh, hopefully he will do a good job. He's quite beloved in this country. His own history presents an unavoidable hurdle for the new monarch. It's just that we've gotten used to Queen Elizabeth and for it to also be a man that's not very well liked in the world, I guess, because of the whole uh, Diana, Camilla thing. With King Charles, his dirty and clean laundry has been in public for decades now. The Queen was popular because we didn't know anything about her. Like, let's be honest, we didn't know anything about her at all. And whereas Prince Charles, is, we already know too much about him. It's impossible to talk about Charles without mentioning the late Princess Diana. The Charles and Diana story was the fairy tale that turned into the nightmare that ultimately turned into the tragedy. I cannot believe what he has done. He's really shown what he truly is like, and that is someone who's a cheat. British journalists Sarah Hewson, Badisha Mamata, Jack Royston, and Camilla Tomini have covered the royals for decades. We went back to old polling from this era back in 1991. So this is one year before his affair of Camilla first became public knowledge. As many as 82% of the British public thought he'd make a good king. By the time they divorced in 1996, only 41% of British people thought that he would make a good king. 
sometimes in life, it, definitely in the royal family, you're born into roles that are very set piece. You're born into roles that sort of have a template, a historical template. And I think sometimes it must be very difficult. What is absolute fact is that he tried to change that for both of his sons. When we return, King Charles the Rebel? Charles had points when he was absolutely raging against the machine in exactly the same way Harry did. He was ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time, mm, Totally Elsa. right. Ahead of his time. And later... King Charles is a man with a battle on his hands. The fight to save the monarchy. The king is acutely aware that they're only there for as long as the public wants them to be there. A dramatic and shocking announcement. Royal drama in the United Kingdom. We're seeing the departure of Harry and Meghan hitting them hard. To see this institutional gaslighting, it is extraordinary. People were very excited that perhaps the royal family was reflecting a multicultural country. And even when it is in their interest, clearly, blatantly in their interest to, to use this couple to promote their agenda, still can't do it. I think that is a huge missed opportunity. Is there any way to get some of that opportunity back? Uh, it's difficult to say. Look, they're not a nuclear family. They're, a, to some extent, a thermonuclear one. <laughs> In the three years since Harry and Meghan announced they were stepping back from their royal duties... Buckingham Palace has been blindsided by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's announcement that they are quitting their royal roles. The spotlight on this family has only grown. There's a conversation about how dark your baby is going to be? Potentially, and what that would mean or look like. British journalist Camilla Tomini broke the news of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's relationship. She says, despite the outrage, Harry's public push for a different royal path feels familiar. There is a great deal of similarity, I think, between the Prince of Wales at times raging against the machine and saying, well, I want to do this and I want to talk about that. And by the way, I know what I'm talking about and I'm not afraid to say it. Who does that remind you of? Reminds me massively of Harry. In his book, Spare, Harry writes that Charles had always been discouraged from hard work, he told me. He'd been advised that the heir shouldn't do too much, shouldn't try too hard for fear of outshining the monarch, but he'd rebelled. Is Charles a rebel? Does anyone feel he is? I wouldn't call him a rebel. I think that he has developed a sense of self-awareness and, and gone at things in a different way, but I wouldn't say that that would be, I wouldn't call that rebelling. I think he'd like to see himself yeah. as a rebel and revolutionary. King Charles is not a rebellion, certainly not revolutionary. I, I wish he was, but I doubt he'll do anything to rock the boat. Charles had points when he was absolutely raging against the machine in exactly the same way Harry did. There are so many parallels. Prince Harry's new book makes it clear why there was no happily ever after for him if he stayed inside those palace walls. Nearly 30 years before Spare, a bombshell biography of then Prince Charles pulled back the curtain on his own difficult upbringing. The authorized book detailing unresolved issues between Charles and his parents, including the emotional gulf between him and his mother, describing Queen Elizabeth as detached and recounting how his father, Prince Philip, thought Charles was a bit of a wimp as a child and bullied him, often bringing him to tears, particularly 
at social gatherings. As for finding that hard work, that act of rebellion Harry talks about, it was also about finding a purpose as the monarch in waiting. As a young man, he had to look around for causes to support that were not political. And I think we forget that back in the day, to fight for the environment or try and save the planet was so off the wall. It wasn't a political issue. Even though he has his extremely obvious flaws, there is this general sense to which he has tried to make a difference in a genuine way, that when he talks about some of these causes, that he actually means what he's saying. Climate change being the greatest um, threat humanity has ever faced, quite literally. As long as I'm still just alive, I shall go on trying to provide what little help I can. His passion for the environment has driven Charles for decades. I've been, I'm afraid, at this for rather a long time. He was deemed as being completely bonkers for talking to his plants, for holistic well-being, for example. And yet, all of those issues have now come into the mainstream. Look at where we are on climate change now. Elsa Anderson, Charles Anson, and Christina Kiriakou saw many of those moments and those issues up close during their time working for the royal family. He mentioned organic farming in 1971, and all people did for the next 30 years was ridicule him. But he was ahead of his time. He was ahead of his time, Elsa. Ahead of his time. Things don't stand still, and it's very possible that we get left behind if we're not always trying to see where the next challenge is coming from. I think there's a natural energy in someone like the king who is very proud and loves his country. He has a strong sort of sense of humanity as a whole. Charles is a passionate man. He's an empathetic man. He's a sensitive man. And those adjectives that I've used to describe him already should give people the sense that he can be hot-headed. That passion fueling a series of letters, the so-called Black Spider Memos, sent to senior government officials in the early 2000s with policy demands on key issues like the Iraq War, a move seen by many as drifting into politics, breaking with royal protocol. The black spider came from the reference to his handwriting. He'd get a letter typed, and then he couldn't resist scribbling all sorts of points in it. And when he was taxed on this, he would say rather defiantly, this is what ordinary people said to me. So I'm passing it on to you politicians who um, should, should know about it. The man is legitimately a workaholic and has a kind of deeply philosophical, profound belief in work, like the Prince's Trust, which actually he sets up to try and help young people from disadvantaged backgrounds find work. We are committed to helping young people achieve their ambitions. Charles established that charity in the 1970s after serving in the Royal Navy. He set that up with his Navy severance pay, didn't he? £7,400 that he put into 21 community projects and has grown now in the form of the Prince's Trust, as we now know it, to support over a million disadvantaged young people, and among them the Hollywood actor Idris Elba. I came up in the Prince's Trust. I actually auditioned for a grant and they gave me a grant. 
He's always sort of talked in terms of leaving a legacy when he said he hoped that he would leave the world in a better place than he had found it, that he's quite genuine in that endeavor. And yet, despite those efforts, there seems to be no escaping the turmoil of the 90s. Diana looms enormously over the entire story. You have people who weren't even alive when Diana was alive, talking about her as if she's the new Marilyn Monroe figure of the UK. Diana is surging on TikTok, partly due to her advocacy for AIDS and mm -hmm. early discussing about the LGBTQ community. And that's why, you know, Diana's legacy is so powerful in terms of what she did, in terms of who she was. And she is always someone who, when people see Charles, they think about. We uh, have some very sad news to bring you. The aftermath of the death of Diana was something that was felt around the globe to have died so young, so tragically, and such a vibrant figure. And the sort of absolute grief that overcame the country it was quite extraordinary. It was extraordinary. People were... Like, men, women, children, tears flowing down their faces. That grief resonating with a new generation, in large part due to the popularity of the crowd. And I think that people out there can sense that I've suffered. And Prince Harry's ongoing pain. I could not face the reality that she was gone. Although we know Charles and Camilla want to move on from it, the fallout, the divorce, Princess Diana is always going to be there. The blame lies with King Charles, and therefore Camilla was kind of to blame, but also dragged through the mud a bit. How do you feel about Camilla? I would prefer Diana, I guess. <laughs> but she's fine. I remember having a conversation with the Queen Consort about being called Camilla because obviously we're both called Camilla. And then I remarked that not many people were called Camilla these days, which then she remarked might have been because of her. <laughs> <laughs> Ahead, why the woman who was once among Britain's most hated is now seen as the king's biggest asset. Hello. She rules with an iron rod with him. She keeps him in line. Oh, my goodness. An evolution with its own share of drama. There was definitely an attempt to rehabilitate the king's image and indeed that of his girlfriend as she was at the time because she was public enemy number one. There's no doubt about it. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are 
which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Most people look upon the king and queen consort as a couple and say, well, they arguably should have probably been together from the beginning. Instead, getting to that point took decades and a very public toll. Years before a shy Diana Spencer was introduced to the world, it was Camilla Shant who caught the eye of the Prince of Wales. The two first met in 1970. Had Charles married Camilla in the first place. She would be seen as a, as a popular consort. Charles joined the Navy in 1971, and while he was at sea, Camilla became engaged to Andrew Parker Bowles. But that wasn't the only complication. For a man born to be king, the requirements for his future queen were clear. An aristocratic bloodline and virginity. Love was far less important. It must be very difficult to say I perhaps would like to follow a different path. And so perhaps in the melee of all of that, Charles wasn't strong enough to say what he really wanted. But he tried to change that for both of his sons. He allowed them to choose freely who they loved. standing on this bridge yeah. in St. James's Park. We are in the center of truly all things British. You see Buckingham Palace at the other end of the lake is horse guards where the Trooping of the Color ceremony takes place. And then of course, Westminster Abbey through the trees. Charles Anson was Queen Elizabeth's press secretary from 1990 to 1997. The years that you were there were some of the most difficult years. So you had the tapes. It was a period of huge change, you know, in the terms of communications, the sophistication of uh, being able to bug people's phones and, uh, and so on. So that when those tapes uh, emerged like that, clearly illegally taped conversations, I was in a very tricky position and I didn't feel there was any alternative but to simply not make a comment. Those tapes were recordings of a private, explicit phone call between Charles and Camilla in 1989, when both were still married. The transcripts, published four years later, rocked the country. The tabloid ready details, including the now infamous moment Charles told Camilla he wished to live inside her trousers, quickly became known as Camillagate. You look at the Camilla Gates and you feel that you've perhaps passed the point of no return. It happened at a time when there was a huge amount of gossip around this forbidden love triangle of the royal family, and that is very adult. 
It's dark, it's deep, it's scintillating gossip. It was only a matter of time before the tabloids printed what's been circulating in private for days. The first complete transcript of the so-called Camillagate tape. It was so damaging because there was an extent to which it depicted the king in a ridiculous and preposterous light. Charles admitted to the affair a year later, a moment made all the more dramatic in The Crown on Netflix. Did you at least try to be faithful from the start? Yes, until... until it became obvious that uh, the marriage couldn't be saved. Words that only seem to strengthen support for Princess Diana and disdain for the Prince of Wales. For so many people, he's seen as someone who was really caught up in a marriage that had the consequence of being incredibly cruel and brutal to Diana. You know, Charles fell from grace during the Diana era um, in quite a spectacular way. Camilla was the other villain in this story. In the wake of Princess Diana's death, it appeared the public would never accept Parker Bowles. The woman who, 30 years later, <laughs> is now queen. Brilliant. Nice to see you here. The biggest irony, of course, is that of all of the royals, arguably the most friendly towards the press is the Queen Consort, yes. the woman who has been most destroyed by the press. She was portrayed as a wicked, scheming woman who was breaking up the royal marriage. I think that was unfair to her. I mean, it was Charles who broke up that marriage, and he wanted a Camilla, not a Diana. Queen Elizabeth finally gave her blessing for Charles and Diana to divorce in 1996. Just a year before Diana's tragic death. Princess Diana has been killed in a car crash in Paris. While Camilla had remained by his side privately, it would take time and careful choreography for her to join him publicly. Suddenly <laughs> find yourself, you know, on the public stage. It is a challenge, and, and if you've not found yourself in that position before, you can imagine it is a, a real, a real challenge. It was a very, very turbulent time, but a lot of what happened during that time was very much from her sensibility that she shouldn't in any way be overt. Was there a role from the press office in helping with Camilla's image? How much would the Queen's press office have played a role in some of those decisions? How closely would the offices work together? Very closely together indeed. And I think in the early stages of their relationship, the palace was keen to take it at a measured rate and not sort of do too much at one time. In his book, and in an interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, Prince Harry says that measured campaign made his future stepmother dangerous. How was she dangerous? Because of the need for her to rehabilitate her image. Harry says the effort to boost Camilla's image, and at times his father's, came at the expense of bad press for Harry and William, 
and that Camilla, quote, sacrificed me on her personal PR altar. There was definitely an attempt to rehabilitate the king's image and indeed that of her, his girlfriend as she was at the time because she was public enemy number one. There's no doubt about it. The view from inside the palace, not surprisingly, a bit different. The institution is so unique. There's so much that other people outside wouldn't understand, but we do. The very notion that those people employed in the royal households would set the family members up against each other and start telling media about negative stories about different... It, it, I was quite horrified. It's not something that I had ever witnessed. I totally agree with that. Absolutely the same. As a family, they needed to stand together as much as possible. Of course there would be tensions. Everybody with their <laughs> Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. Hi. Hi. When we return... Her great task now is to show everyone around her and the public, look, I am here for a reason. I didn't just home wreck this family and be part of a horrible, weird Greek tragedy. She's been a real rock and a support. Ultimately, she is essential to Charles. Members of the royal household will know that if you want something done, you have a quiet word in the ear of the Queen Consort. She'll say, leave it with me. And she'll then make sure that it happens and that the King is on board. It's been nearly 20 years since Charles and Camilla were married. And there you see them. Now married, you can see the gold ring on Camilla's hand. It's always nice to have somebody on your side. We laugh a lot because she's, you know, sees the funny side of life. Twenty years of handshakes and royal engagements, of smiles and photos. Chances to connect and to convince. When we talk about Camilla and her PR, it was a slow, steady, playing the long game from public enemy number one to where she is now, soon to be queen, crowned in Westminster Abbey. She's got a consciousness about her public image. What is going on here in history class? I think She's also conscious, perhaps, of her husband's ego, or indeed the ego of the institution of royalty to which she belongs. Charles was very jealous of Diana's popularity. I think the reason Camilla fits in better with him than Diana did is because she doesn't upstage him. How responsible is she for what has changed in terms of the perception toward Charles? Did she help? I think certainly she acts as a calming influence to Charles. 
she's there when things are getting a little bit fraught, tempers may be frayed. And we saw it played out in the days after the Queen's death. Oh, God, I hate this. Oh, look, it's going everywhere. It's everybody And when the pens weren't working or the ink was going everywhere. There she was, calming him down. It's all right, let's change the pen. It's always marvelous to have somebody who, who you know, you feel understands and wants to encourage and, and um, or, you know, she certainly poke fun at if I get too serious about things. One thing that we see from the Queen Consort, Camilla, that she rules with an iron rod with him. She keeps him in line. Oh, my goodness, absolutely. She has very much been the driving force trying to get some work-life balance into his life. In a family brimming with very public turmoil, King Charles may need Camilla's steady hand more than ever. Let's face it, what kind of relationship does he have with Andrew? I mean, Andrew is accused of being a criminal. He didn't have a good relationship with his parents. He has a sticky relationship with his children. Camilla is his rock, and he is, he is very reliant on her. Prince Andrew was once second in line to the throne. A helicopter pilot, rumored to be the Queen's favorite child, until his stunning fall from grace amid claims of sexual abuse. Prince Andrew speaks out about his ties to Jeffrey Epstein and allegations he had sex with an underage girl. While he has repeatedly denied the accusations, Andrew was stripped of his royal duties and military titles, the son noting the Queen had effectively banished him. A civil suit filed by his accuser in 2021 was settled in early 2022 with no admission of guilt or wrongdoing. The monarchy was slow to take action on Prince Andrew and he should have had his honorary patronages revoked uh, way sooner. You know, Harry's and Meghan's were revoked before Andrew's were. And honestly, that is a stain on the reputation of the monarchy. How damaging he is to the monarchy. And this is a big headache for the coronation. I think people accepted that he was there in the Queen's funeral, he is the Queen's son, but simply Andrew couldn't be more toxic. It's incendiary. I think that's one of the key contentions really, isn't it? That nobody really covers Andrew much in comparison to Meghan, who gets covered all the time. And that is problematic, that's deeply problematic, because you have this person who is connected to all of this evil and wrong, and yet that is less important somehow than a black woman as part of the royal family. And that's... That it's is, a stark contrast. It's a stark contrast. Scandals, real and imagined, dominate the royal headlines. Prince Harry's new book and his media blitz are causing a stir. Has the relationship between the press and the royal family changed at all in the last several years? I think the relationship between the press and the royal family has actually not changed. Perfect. Because they want to be seen. Perfect. They want to be talked about, but only in a good light. 
Kate, you wrote, a royal's rather like the old adage about a tree that falls in the forest. If it's not heard, does it make a sound? They have no point unless they are seen. They have to be in the press because if you're not there to be seen, you don't exist. Controlling when and how they're seen is a lot more difficult in 2023. And not just because everyone is a photographer. Part of the problem the monarchy has in relation to the press is it's, this is built on an old model. There's a wall of silence and they can leak out what they want. But Harry and Meghan have showed you can't do that anymore. You've got Netflix, you've got Spotify, you've got book deals. We just know far too much about them. That relationship between the royal family and the media is a complex, difficult, at times, relationship that they need the media, the media needs them. They don't like what each other's doing all the time. At the end of the day, the monarch has got to perform in a way that attracts public support. Prince Harry will attend his father's coronation. Public support can be fickle. He's going to be doing so alone. His wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, will not join him. Public feuds, downright disastrous. And it could be that there's still a huge amount of tension between Meghan and the rest of the family. What I would say, definitely with His Majesty, is that he was always very keen to bring it back to their core business, which was serving members of the public. That was often the benchmark for us. Is, is it a public matter? Is it a private matter? If it's a private matter, in general, no, don't comment. So what I'm hearing in all of this is, don't expect to hear anything from the king about whether he and Harry are going to reconcile. Is that what I should take from Well, I, that I think Because that is a question so. I think a I, lot of people I have. I absolutely think so. <laughs> You'll never get rid of gossip, and gossip is a trait in every single culture. Thank you. Thank you, sir. But equally, I think all families have their difficulties that they've got to deal with. Still to come, as the monarchy shrinks, could even bigger changes lie ahead? In Britain, it has caused a swing in opinion among 18 to 24-year-olds specifically. The monarchy works because you don't know because of that mystique and that prestige. When you start to pull away, you just realize these are ordinary people. Why on earth are they representing them? That's, that's the big existential threat to the monarchy, which I don't know you can put the genie back in the bottle. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I don't care for the monarchy. I feel like there's no point in them. 
I'm not sure if it has use in modern society. I don't think we should have a monarchy anymore. Do you ever imagine that the monarchy would go away? It could Almost happen. Have. Privilege is going out of fashion really fast <laughs> with the eat the rich era. You know, the history of colonialism and slavery is a major problem. So the chessboard is stacked against them. The whole royal debacle around Megabarkle and all this has thrown into relief how much things haven't really changed as much as we'd like. Is there an opportunity for King Charles to lead more of that discussion? I think we have to accept, and one of the primary functions of the royal family today is symbolic, and it is to be the symbol of white supremacy. Prince Charles, King Charles, sorry, was sitting at this table now. He would take great exception to that remark. When this issue rose with the royal family, William made a point of breaking with protocol. Very much not a racist man. You may disagree, many people would disagree, but that is his declared line. We're seeing a shift in the generations, which is we're not just going to sit back silently now and take this. There are times when we have to speak out. And if they don't, they're no longer relevant. Mm. So if you're going to move on, then you have to deal with the problem. There's nothing they can do other than abolish themselves. The king is acutely aware, like his late mother was, that they're only there for as long as the public wants them to be there. In Britain, among 18 to 24 year olds specifically, where now more than 50% would support abolishing the monarchy. The way I understand it, there's no real rule about how the UK would go about abolishing the monarchy. We have no constitution. This is one of our questions. And <laughs> yeah. like so many other countries that have the monarchy set of state, they are, have constitutions. So their political will has to be there to abolish the monarchy. The monarchy does depend on taxpayers' money. It receives 80 to 90 million pounds of taxpayers' money every year. Every year that goes through the parliamentary process. Last year, the royal family cost each UK taxpayer roughly a dollar and 60 cents. And while that number is admittedly low, amid rising inflation, it's the optics that really add up. The current generation are about to go through a cost of living crisis. It's his problem right now. In the future, it might actually be William's problem. Everybody's really struggling now with the economy and the cost of living. So to see that amount of money spent on medieval ritual that really impacts zero on everyday people's lives just seems a little bit sickening. It feels very extravagant. But it's not just about the coronation, a message King Charles seems to understand. Charles always had this idea, a monarchy that costs less and involves less people on the balcony. And there's inspiration to be found in some of Europe's other aging monarchies, like Sweden, where in 2019, the king cut five of his grandchildren from the taxpayer-funded payroll. Charles has to look at this and has to think about this in his role as preserving the monarchy for the next generation. For William, for George, and whether or not he can preserve it. Very nice having grandchildren, actually, I think. And um, I don't know, it's a very odd thing. You think you can't believe it's happening to you. It's rather fun to get down on the floor and do silly things with them. <laughs> People might say, well, hang on, no, we expect George, Charlotte and Louis to have proper jobs and maybe a little bit of royal work on the side. And somehow the monarchy is going to have to adapt to that. A lot can change in 20 years. Of course, there's a big difference between a leaner lineup of royals 
and none at all. And even the staunchest critics believe abolishing the British monarchy is unlikely. The monarchy is very popular. All that we say about it, as much as critique I can give to it, it is still very, very popular. There will never not be a monarchy in the UK. So the question has to be, both for the public and the royals, what are you here for? And what are you going to do with all of this extraordinary privilege and power and wealth that you have? I think what we're seeing is him trying to carve out that role, where he stands, how far he can go, and time will tell whether or not he is able to continue to make a difference in the same way. I think he has to do that in a quieter way behind closed doors by bringing others together. But, but I like that about him. I like the fact that I imagine him reading the sort of king terms and conditions every <laughs> night. Going and thinking, like, okay, how can I push this? Where's the loophole in this? Is there a handbook for being king? <gasps> Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, Definitely not. When it comes to this legacy, people are looking beyond the king. They are looking to the Prince and Princess of Wales and their role in all of this and the future of the monarchy is absolutely pivotal. The most important player in the House of Windsor right now is Kate and has been for some time because her positioning and the extra kind of sprinkling of stardust that she brings to proceedings to what is now an all-male line of succession for some time to come. And it's going to be the positioning of the Wales's children as well. Of course, it's possible those young heirs decide they don't want a royal life. It wouldn't be the first time. There have been many crises throughout the history of monarchy. And it is something that is, I believe, going to continue until there is a slimmed-down monarchy and a monarch that decides this isn't for me or enough is enough. There now is the time to, to end this. But also I question sort of, gosh, who would that be? <laughs> like that is... That's a significant With the monarchy, lineage to end. There might be somebody who says that, but there'll be a brother or cousin who says, all right, I'll do the job. Which is, and then, which, to be fair, <laughs> which to be fair, if we were going back and looking at what's happened in history, that would certainly be the case. Barring any defectors, the future is clear for at least two more generations. It was King Farouk of Egypt. He said, I'd like to make a wager that in a hundred years, there will only be five monarchies left, a king or queen of England, a king of spades, a king of diamonds, a queen of uh, hearts, and a queen of clubs. To further celebrate the coronation next weekend, King Charles is encouraging communities to come together for local picnics, a nationwide day of service, and on Sunday night, a televised coronation concert. There are protests planned as well from anti-monarchy groups, but just how large they will be remains to be seen. Join us next Sunday as we look at allegations surrounding a commonly used household product that some women are now blaming for their cancers. I'll see you next Sunday. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com griefsupport Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.